So I want to talk to you guys about Singin' Dog Double Reads. Singin' Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high-quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products, and you'll be glad you did. That's Singin' Dog Double Reads. Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at JennetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Lee, I'm back. Oh, thank God. I have been I have been going to text you every single day while you were gone. And then I was like, oh, don't text her. She's not here. She's not, she doesn't want to text you. <laughs> well, and it feels like forever since we've done this because not to peek behind the curtain, but we pre-recorded episodes for when I was gonna be gone, so we didn't you know, not release on time. So it really feels like a minute since we have recorded a dish. A very long minute. I was like, oh my God, this hilarious thing happened. I got a text. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> tell me about your trip. It was amazing. Of course, the like centerpiece, the whole point of going was going to La Scala, going to Aida. And it was this really surreal moment. There were times that I looked around and I was just like, I'm here. I'm doing it. I've dreamed of this moment. I don't, I don't know. It was, Aww. it was so insane. The singing was crazy. Okay. So, um, you walk in and there are all these like larger than life statues of like these pinnacles of Italian composition. So Verdi and Rossini and Donizetti. And I was so mad. Everyone broke the cell phone rule. I was like, <laughs> was I reading an old part of the website? Have you guys just decided it's an uphill battle and you're not doing the cell phone rule anymore? So I didn't get a picture of me standing you know, embarrassingly proud and giddy in front of this huge Verity oh, statue. No. <laughs> but it was okay because it kept us, you know, completely in the moment. Uh-huh. But the singing was so amazing. It was Aida. And we studied a lot before going to see it. And apparently the opera was really criticized in its time because it was too much like French grand opera. And of course, they want Verdi to be capital I Italian. But what that means is there are all those huge grand opera elements. There was huge um, sphinx heads and some of the um, cast members were painted blue all over their bodies and 
they were carrying out the women on these like beds with four men on each post and like fanning and it was just the pageantry and the drama it was so insane the singing was phenomenal um we literally stopped counting at 20 curtain calls at the end (laughs) literally there were people getting up and leaving because the curtain calls were taking so long and we were like oh man, why are you getting up and leaving? This is like the Super Bowl of opera, man. Little do we know, they were leaving because there are taxis lined up outside La Scala waiting for the opera patrons to leave. And when they're gone, they're gone. Really? So side note, we were all gussied up in our fancy opera garb going down from our hotel room down to the lobby to have them help us call a cab. And a couple floors down, a woman steps in, also very dressed up, and she hears us speaking English, and she goes, oh, are you going to the opera tonight? Another American. And we were like, yes. And we started talking about how excited we were to go to the opera. And she um, says, oh, sorry to have to chat. I got to go run down to the ATM to get money for my cab. And I said, oh, no, no, no. Let's just share a cab. And she goes, really? Uh, I was kind of nervous about taking a cab by myself, you know, foreign country. And I was like, yes, of course, let's share a cab. I do not like where this is going. Oh, man. It, well, it was fine. And then I oh. said, and you know what? Why don't we catch a cab on the ride back too. And she said, oh, that would be wonderful. So the opera gets over. Everyone is like booking it out. Uh-huh. And we knew where she was sitting. And so we went there. She wasn't there. It, and for the opera house being huge, there aren't that many um, gathering areas. So we were like, okay, she's not here. She's not here. Um, we check outside. She's not there. We go to go back inside. And the person's like, the opera house is empty, ma'am. You can't come back in. So by the time we realized that she had ditched us in our commitment to not ditching her, <laughs> every cab was gone. Great. So we waited a couple minutes. They were not coming. No. And so here we are in Milan. In the nicest clothes that we have worn in a decade. I'm in heels and we figure out that we have to walk back to our hotel. How far was it? It was only about a mile, but it's in heels heels and it was night and we were dressed really fancy. And so we were trying to walk really fast and my feet were just killing me. And so at one point I'm laughing and also crying. For oh my you gosh. I decide I have to take them off. I was just you like, I can't stand off. it anymore. Yeah. And so I walk the rest of the way. It's like, this is supposed to be the fanciest moment of my life. <laughs> and I am walking in stocking feet on oh. the streets of Milan. And it occurred to me, do you remember the episode of Jersey Shore when they're in Italy? No, I don't know the episode of Jersey Shore when they're in Italy. <laughs> and they go out to the club and Snooky fights with her boyfriend oh, no. and he like storms out of the club. And so Wow is like trying to chase after him to track him down to get him to come back and talk to her. But he's going super fast because he's in sneakers and she's in high heels. And then she's like, Gianni, Gianni way and so she takes off her heels and she's like I'm barefoot on the streets of Florence and I was like okay I'm just living my Wow fantasy here 
on my vacation. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it all worked out. And then we spent the rest of the vacation committed to eating and purchasing and drinking wine. And it was great. But I can honestly say that I went to two different foreign countries in some cases, small towns where very little English was spoken, and the rudest person to me the entire time was a fellow American. So <laughs> there you go. Thanks so much. Yay, America. <laughs> uh, what have you been up to? Uh, well, not nearly as much as you, obviously, but good stuff. We moved to a new house, which I really like. Yay. And I got to play this really awesome gig with the Mississippi Symphony, where I, I had I didn't know this, but apparently Jackson, Mississippi, is like the the U.S. home of the International Ballet Competition. They do it once every four years in Jackson, and so I got to play principal oboe, and the Joffrey Ballet was performing, and I got to play for the Joffrey Ballet. It was. So cool. That's amazing. It was so cool. It was just, I was, and you know, I had this big solo. It was the Cacciatorian Adagio from Spartacus, which I hadn't known before, but apparently it's big in the dance community. Okay. And it was this giant solo, and it was the first time that they had ever tried to do it with live music. And I was like, I am an integral part of this production. <laughs> You know, oboists, we love being the center of attention and we love feeling important. And it just checked all those boxes for me. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's been a really good summer. I got contacts, so I feel much more comfortable in the Mississippi humidity. This was key. This was almost as big as finally getting prescription sunglasses, to be honest with you. So you can finally be rid of that um, nose bridge glasses sweat. You know that struggle, and you know that it's real. <laughs> We've also got some big podcast news. So exciting. Okay, so by the time this episode is released, we will have launched our very first merch store on the website. I'm so excited. We have uh, two items right now these are limited release um we have a tote bag with this really awesome design on it and we have a shot glass that is good for oboes and bassoons and the shot glass says all you read is love hopefully getting some of that good juju into we gotta get that good juju and jackie do you want to tell them what the uh the design is on the bag well, this design was very hard earned, yeah. we should specify. So that we had this idea, we have several ideas, actually, if this turns out, well, hopefully more to come. Um, but we wanted something that would work for any member of the Double Read community. So we have all four main members of the Double Read family, oboe, English horn, bassoon, contra bassoon, and it says squad underneath. So you can, <sighs> you know, Tell everyone who you're running with when you're toting around your sheet music and your read tools and whatnot. But the design came, or the idea for the design, I should say, came before the actual design. And neither you nor I can draw or graphic hooba no. jub. Actually, it was really funny because you were like, well, what do you envision? And then I was just drawing, drawing like stick figure over. <laughs> No. <laughs> so we had to get enlist some help 
Um, and we found um, some resources with which to order some designs. And the first artist we worked with, now, you know, Double Read Dish is very committed. We do not throw shade. But <laughs> as we would say in the South, bless their heart. Bless this- them. <laughs> Um, so the intersection of graphic designer who also is familiar with the Double Read family, we weren't so secure about. And so we sent a description of what we wanted and multiple pictures of different angles and scales of every single one of the instruments. And this first person had a vendetta against the English horn. I don't know. Oh my God. So first, the English horn was a clarinet. (laughs) (laughs) They sent back the design. And I was like, why is there a clarinet in here? (laughs) And so we said, "Um, that is a clarinet. If you could make it an English horn. And then I attached two more pictures of English horn. And then we get the revision. And it looks like an English horn on the bottom. Mm -hmm. But the reed is an oboe reed on the top. And so I was like, oh, okay. So we request that the vocal be put on the top of the horn. And they literally (laughs) drew a vocal on top of the oboe reed, like above it. So it looked like vocal reed English horn. (laughs) Top to bottom. It was terrible. So we... Do not tell this story to throw shade, but merely... It was just really funny. It was so funny, and we needed to go with a different artist who, you know, could more uh, adequately execute our vision, because we were not going to, you know, rest until we got an awesome product that everyone can be really excited about. And we're so excited. And we found this other person whose style we liked, and we got the design back first try. It was so amazing. I couldn't stop staring at it. It was just so cute. It's so cute. And I love it so much. And I think you guys are going to love it too. It's perfect. It's light. It's a unique aesthetic. And we should also say, you know, this isn't to line our pockets and and make bank. This is really to create more resources. Well, first, we want you guys to have these awesome products to unite us as a community. Um, But also, uh, with more resources comes our ability to do more things and reach more people with the podcast. So this is going back um, to the Double Read community and to Double Read Dish. So yeah, we appreciate your support. And hopefully you guys like all this swag. Yeah. And it goes into these really great future projects that we're brainstorming to provide more opportunities and resources for our community. So it's all going to a good place. So, you know, go to our shop. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Double or Nothing Reeds. You know them. They're the company that's dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities. And good news. Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. Better yet, as authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. Additionally, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. 
And if you're looking for private oboe lessons and can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit their website, doubleornothingreads.com, for good quality and affordable read-making supplies and resources, lessons, instruments, and much more. Everyone knows that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and read tool roll. Visit them at www.gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just read knives. Welcome to the podcast, Bill Ludwig, professor of bassoon at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Welcome, Bill. Hello, hello. Thank you very much. I always like to start by asking if you can introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us about your training and educational journey, maybe how you got to the bassoon in the first place. Sure. Well, starting back at the beginning, I was a, a saxophonist in high school and a devoted jazzer, and I was that's where my life was headed. And then my band director in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, decided bassoon would be a good double, so I thought that was great. And got some started getting lessons with my first teacher John Patterson who was who was the bassoon professor at Louisiana State and um, he was just a wonderful teacher and inspiration in a lot of ways and um, so that's how I got my start I was so excited to be a jazzer and have a bassoon double that I went to um, I think it was called North Texas State at that point it was a big jazz school and I did pretty well in the jazz program in terms of uh, getting into a big band and all that. Um, <clears throat> but I noticed around me there's like 40 other saxophone players that I could sight read better, but sure played better jazz than I did. <laughs> and so I decided, well, maybe bassoon be a better fit. So then I'm focused. So after about, I stayed there, actually transferred back to LSU uh, to study with Mr. Patterson and um, got my undergraduate degree at LSU with him. Um, and during the summer, during the summer, I think it was before my senior year, I was able to get to the Sarasota Music Festival was, was already going back way back then. And uh, also the Aspen Music Festival. So I had a lot of interesting, uh, particularly that summer, got to see the larger world of the, of the bassoon world with Saul Schoenbach and um, Sherman Walt at the Sarasota Festival. And with Leonard Shero at Aspen, spent time studying with him. So it was a really important summer for me. And then um, got into, after the undergraduate LSU, went to, to Temple University to study with Bernard Garfield. Very enlightening process there. This, the school at that time was maybe not up to what I was hoping for in terms of a graduate program, but certainly Mr. Garfield was a wonderful teacher and, and the ideas of expectations and what the level of playing needs to be to be successful was really something I got from him. Uh, but we just, I, my wife and I decided to get married after that first year of grad school, and um, so we got both got into Yale 
to Yale University. And so I finished my, my master's at Yale University with uh, Arthur Weisberg. So that's kind of the, the educational process that I went through. And I immediately got a job at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, right out of grad school and played in the, the Kansas City Orchestra quite a bit during that time period. And then was lured to go to University of South Florida, where there was a active quintet and that was doing a recording uh, project with Musical Heritage Society, if anybody knows what that group is anymore, uh, but of the Rika quintets and stayed there for eight or nine years and then went to LSU uh, to replace Mr. Patterson. And my parents were living in, in Baton Rouge, so that was a nice homecoming for us. And we lived uh, at LSU for, lived in Baton Rouge and taught at LSU for many years. And then 2007, I believe I decided to make a change and came to IU. So here we are. <laughs> Whenever we have someone on who studied with some of these legacy teachers, as we think of them, I, you know, I've bassoon grown up hearing those words, um, Leonard Sherrill, Sherman Walt, Bernard Garfield. Could you talk to us about um, your experiences with some of those teachers? Well, sure. Um, you know, from, from each of those, you know, I was my main teacher, like I've said, is John Patterson uh, at LSU. And he had studied with Schoenbach to a certain degree. And he was also a, um, a, a very brilliant person, acoustically very, very knowledgeable. Uh, and he was also a, a terrific uh, repairman. And so I got a lot of just sort of practical insights from him. And as well as he had a just beautiful sound. So for, for with Mr. Patterson, it was mostly... Is mostly I was learning mostly through him through his sound that he's producing and his and you know his his ideas about the acoustics of the instrument and the reed etc. But with uh, kind of my first uh, branching out with that was 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 with Mr. Schoenbach, and it was you know I, Schoenbach was very had very set approaches shall we say <laughs> to uh, teaching the instrument and I I think you know he felt I was somewhat untrained from a phrasing standpoint and particularly from a you know, from the Tabato approach to con in the conception of phrasing. So that's I spent a summer with him the, the, after I saw him at uh, Sarasota. I spent the next summer I, in Marlboro. I wasn't at Marlboro, but I found a place to get a job at Marlboro and spent six or seven weeks studying with him while he was at Marlboro. And it was a very, very eye-opening just trying to get into phrasing ideas, being more, getting the concepts of... Uh, larger phrasing and all, all that all those details that I think he he was very good at so for for Saul that was uh, it was a very intimidating um, honestly I think many people th thought Saul was intimidating I had friends that had studied with him and it was kind of tear you down and build you up and, and build you back up in his image and but it, it really wasn't that to a large degree it was just kind of reality I think for Mr. Schoenbach was, well here's where you got to get to Bill and you know he didn't spare the words uh, to you know to be to be overly you know sympathetic to where you are in your career but uh, it was very eye-opening and it was a very important summer for me that particularly that summer at uh, at Marlboro uh, with Mr. Shero, it was just, he was such a legacy even then in my eyes, um, listening to, he was one of the first recordings I'd ever heard on the, on the so Coronet records of the Etler Sonata and some of these other things. And so it was just a, a pleasure to, to sit next to him and listen to, listen to what he had to say. We did, we went through basics, you know, a lot of the 
concert, I built a concert studies and my, I don't remember what else, but you know, major literature. And it was always, it always, there was always such musicality associated with what he, what he was trying to uh, get across to me. So just, but for me, a lot of it has just was listening to these people play. And I think that's what I try to get my students to realize when they go study with other ones, other people besides me. Well, what did you, what did he, what did he do with his embouchure? How did he sound? Well, how did he make that soft attack? You know, what are listening and looking at the individual. So for some reason I did a lot of looking at, play, at performers when they played and I was, I assumed that when they they moved an embouchure or they moved this, it was purposeful. And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But I learned a lot through that process as well. And then studying with Mr. Garfield, like I was maybe alluding to a little bit beforehand, it was okay, dude. This is this is the real time here, uh, in terms of being in the Philippine Orchestra and showing up every week and you know having those kind of standards. And so. It was, and he, he was focused on his read style. I must, uh, I, I learned a huge amount from uh, Mr. Garfield. He was rather, rather focused on his read style um, and just kind of for, a, for the first six weeks, or for the first semester, I should say, we just kind of looked at his read in the light and said, I think you ought to be playing something a little bit more like this. And I had something, you know, like massively bigger than that. <laughs> and, so I just went diligent, went back and tried and tried and tried and, I was getting close, but I don't. I think my embouchure is just a little bit too big, and I think I had a dumpy, sorry, fox at that time. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very early fox, shall we say? And I just don't think his read style. I wasn't aware of that, but I just don't think his read style would would could bring a, the, that kind of you know stuffy, uh, you know, fox instrument to life. So after after about a after about a uh, after about the first semester, he said, you know. I think you're better off with that read style you had earlier. And <laughs> in some way, it was a relief for me, but it's also, I mean, I was, I was really kind of learning just by trial and error at that point, I think, with read making. Um, and, but that was a very trying to get that softer style to work and learning about different parts of the, of the read, et cetera, et cetera. So, but that was really a small element, like I went to reinforce with Mr. Garfield. It was just you know, freedom. He we did Tansman, I can remember some Vivaldi. And he would just show me he will I think you ought to change this articulation. Don't you see this relationship here with this particularly they like the Tansman Sonatine first movement? There's there were some articulations he thought was didn't make sense and I as I look back in, on it now I agree totally and just make to make the phrasing work out. So the the sensibility of, hey, you're a professional, you make decisions about music and let's decide from a you know intelligent thoughtful process what what you want to do with this music and it's not just articulations i'm trying to say um mm -hmm. and then with mr weisberg um it was that was another kind of intimidating experience because um he could he i'm i'm not sure how much he really practiced he practiced a lot when he was a kid and he was this genius of a musician and a bassoonist and a and a composer to a large degree, and but certainly a genius as a, a conductor of contemporary music, he would he would say, I'd be struggling with this and this little section. Well, let me just try that. He'd grab my horn, put it on his, you know, he wouldn't even put a seat strap on. He would just kind of hold it against his leg and just plow through something that was just taking me, you know, a month to get to half tempo, or at least I felt that <laughs> way. And uh, so I started... That made me start to, I really reevaluated my whole approach when I went with Mr. Weisberg, not particularly 
because he said, Bill, you got to start over. But I just, I felt I saw so many fundamental things that I still was not sure of. And so that made me reevaluate how I took a breath and how, what my Amish was like and what, you know, just all the basics. And then how do you practice and why are you grabbing the horn? Like it's, you know, 400 pounds of, you know, of something you're trying to hold up and just reevaluate my posture. And, you know, a lot of it is still ongoing today that, uh, uh, evaluation, reflection on what is successful, etc. But uh, he was, you know, and I, I loved him very much. He wasn't, he wasn't an overly talkative person, just as my first teacher wasn't an overly talkative person. But he said, well, that's pretty good. You know, so I would, I would go out of the lesson thinking, you know, I had just conquered the, the universe with, uh, <laughs> that kind of, with that kind of praise. So, but, but from that, it, it just, but again, I think uh, we had talked about, you know, you know, some issues of confidence or, or maybe, you know, you think you're fooling somebody, but he made, he made me get, get to the point of realizing that, you know, you got to spend this work on these basic ideas and apply those basic ideas and how to get those turned into musical, effectively musical gesture. So, um, I still owe a great deal of debt to, to all of those people. So you have been um, an artist teacher faculty at the Brevard Music Center since 2002 and I am a very happy alum of the Brevard Music Center from, I think, 2011, something like that. Um, and I would love to hear your thoughts on uh, music festivals in general and why they're important for students. I know that for me, it was a very formative and positive experience. And I know some students struggle with, um, well, I could audition for festivals or I could work and make money for the school year. So could you talk to us about, um, you know, why that kind of experience is important? Uh, sure. Um, and I, I, I agree totally with you. And I think, you know, as time has passed, I think the, you know, our, our economic situation, it grows more dire to a certain degree in terms of higher education and how the students can fund it and how they, you know, so... Oftentimes, there's some real uh, necessity of students working over the summer, but um, I, I encourage and I encourage every one of my students to to find some summer process for them, some summer outlet, because um, I, I really felt like I I was aware of those things, uh, those summer festivals when I was a student. Of course, this was a long time ago, and there's a, a much different a layer of the, of them now. But I really feel like. I kind of wasted my, after my sophomore year and after my uh, freshman year, why didn't I go try that? I was working and doing those things, but I just felt like I, I had to restart my approach in those, those years. I remember very distinctly feeling like it was re, 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 you know, getting things up and going again. So, so it's for the summer festivals, it's, it's crucial. I think it's crucial on many levels. And one of the, one of them is to get a different perspective on how you play the bassoon or how, how the bassoon sounds from other students that are at the festival are you, you, you know, I learned as much from, from any of these festivals and all, all of the teachers that were at my, at, in my educational processes. I, I, for some reason, my wife is a flutist. Not, that's not a, for some reason, for some, <laughs> I really, I think that is the reason uh, that I've really been attracted to, to how flute, players produce their sound, the sounds they make, everything's so resonant, and i just jealous of some of their unlabored resonances. And so I mean, as I would go through these different, you know, summer festivals or different 
performance opportunities. I've had, I was really always focused on the flute and the oboe to a large degree as well, with a lot of strong friends in the oboe, you know, in the oboe world. But I just feel like there's that learning and listening experience in, in the summer. And I think oftentimes at many universities, uh, getting to a summer orchestra is a step up. And that's really important to see how you react, how you fit into that, to the competition of just getting to, into the into the summer festival. And then when you're there, you're listening to see how do I interact with these people? Am I am I on par? And then and, and within the orchestra and getting through that processes of, oh, you know, developing your listening skills and reacting to why is that flute player sharp in the upper register? What am I going to do? That? You know, how do you how do you find pitch or how do you react? All those types of important you know listening and performance skills and and now as as you all as you as we all uh, know it's getting more difficult just to get into uh, festivals and particularly the ones that are the ones that are starting to be less expensive it's it's like getting into a major university now so I think it's it really I try to get some of my students to really particularly the performance majors to really focus their time on Let's get started in September. What's what's going on with Aspen? What's going what's going on with you know Eastern? What's going on with all the other festivals that are out there? So you brought up admissions. You teach at a highly competitive institution, and you have a lot of applicants that you're evaluating. So what makes a student stick out in terms of potential and sparks your interest in working with them when you're deciding admissions decisions? What, what, I, what I think I mostly listen for is just a sense of there's a musical soul in there. And that musical soul is either successfully coming through or I maybe I, I sense through some tension in the body, body or, or the embouchure, et cetera, the tensional aspects that seem to be getting in the way. So, but I think, you know, one of the things, some of the things that are just truisms that there has to be some technical I call it fluidity. It's not so cumbersome that we can't play through technical passages with some element of grace and flow. So that's, I think that's very important. And I think sometimes it's easy to, particularly for younger students getting into the undergraduate program at a university, it's, so it's a little, it's hard to have a strong sensibility, a strong practice uh, routine that really does focus on air with scales and getting it to fast enough, you know, tempo that you can you can show that you have that you have you have the ability to, to play technically the other thing in terms of musical gesture is i'm i think sometimes i what i spend a lot of time doing with, with students because that maybe not all students but with a lot of students is listening and looking for tension and how can how can the students get rid of that tension so i'm i'm looking to see how students make vocal connections when they leap to the upper register or are they are they moving their embouchure in such a drastic way that I feel like, given I might have a comparison of other students that aren't doing those types of things, that that I can choose the students that have, have already a higher level of using the airstream, using the embouchure in a cushioned, uh, flexible way that is is important. And the third thing, if if it is, it's it certainly is intonation. So whether they produce that on their instrument. You know, there's the typical notes that are sharp or flat. I can hear. I can hear them making adjustments, or you can hear them not making adjustments. So, so I often so if the student, particularly high school student, is not used to matching pitch or singing, I go. One of the last things I do at an audition is I just go to the piano and start 
hitting a few notes on the piano, trying to figure out where their range is. And I just had, please sing that back to me. And you'd be surprised. A lot of students did that with a wonderful voice and easy to do. And a lot of people still struggle with that. So for me, that's a big warning that oftentimes we will be struggling long-term with that, mm-hmm. just the ability to, to audiate pitch. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it can be a hum. If it's not a great opera sound the student is producing, but it has to be, uh, you know, has to be able to get that out of your body in some way. And the other aspect of the, maybe it's a fourth one is I, I encourage all students get to get to a lesson with who you think you want to be um, studying with for your undergraduate or certainly graduate program. Um, and I, when I, I, if I can see that a student really adapts well, is understanding what I'm saying and is not hold is not, you know, it's, it's easy for them to make those adaptations. Short term is one issue, making adaptations. Long term is another of convincing a student you have to use all that extra energy I'm trying to get these students to use, perhaps, mm-hmm. but that they can actually uh, adapt to what I'm trying to get them to do, and most can. So that's when I start to say, well, you know, maybe this person has really more talent than, than another person because of how they've been, uh, how I felt they were with, within the context of the lesson. Kind of related, you spoke about the competitive aspect of our field. And certainly that is a consideration when seeking and obtaining employment. And you've had a lot of students who are highly successful in the field. And it's a little bit difficult question because, of course, due to the highly competitive nature, not everyone who has phenomenal qualities is ultimately able to quote unquote make it. But I wonder if you have had any observations about in your teaching, those students who do go on to be highly successful, do you find a common thread or certain aspects in those students? Is that something you've noticed? Well, um, certainly. I mean, there are some common threads among the successful, I think, students. And and foremost, I think, among them is that there is just this I don't know, overwhelming desire to be to to not not be successful, but to to be effective in their improvement as a performer. And I, I think that's one of the things that I found with students that I feel like I'm just trying to get out of their way because they've got a really good they were listening well. They're trying to listen more to sounds and music around them. So I think it's just a real dedication to to their craft and to their success. And you can you can you can sense it. Uh, and so one of the things that I try to do honestly is try to get everybody else in the studio, not through comparison, but just get everybody else to the context, getting into the context of, you know, what is that? What is what does dedication look like? And you know, you know, spending the extra hour a day practicing and and or whatever the issues might be. So there's certainly that dedication, and I, I do think um, <clears throat> I keep coming back to tension. But I do think students, there are some students that are a little more, that are more naturally physical. They understand their body, they're, they are, they understand how their body works. They're, maybe if you, I don't say this in a negative way, but they're not embarrassed about their body. They feel comfortable in their body. And so it becomes a more natural process to engage with it in our very physical approach of our, our very physical needs on the instrument. So I think that's a really important important aspect of the most successful students as well. Um, and I think the third aspect of it is they, they look around them and they, they see colleagues that they want to play with and they, 
they get, I think most of, most of the time, I feel like they seek colleagues that will challenge them. Uh, as I look back on it, I think that's what I did as a younger student. I saw these, you know, let's go do a quintet together. Okay, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to say, sound like I'm a, a cutthroat person or, you know, not playing with my friends, but I really looked around, boy, I really love this guy's oboe playing. So let's get together with that. So get, get with him. Let's get a trio or a quartet or blah, 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 you know, whatever you want to. But I think there's that element of it too. And I do think some students still have, it's that issue between you're holding back, you're a little unsure of yourself, or you're just full bore into this process. And so I encourage all of my students to, you know, let let go of any guarding process they might have, you know, and make sure everybody realizes we're not competing with each other, but we're competing with ourselves to, mm -hmm. to achieve this success. And that, you know, like the story goes, you know, I don't have my psychology degree quite yet, but I certainly have... <laughs> You know, yeah, but as a private teacher, as you both well know, you feel like you are mentoring these students into positive mental outlooks, positive, mm -hmm. healthy mental outlooks. And so sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's, hey, let's, you, you might, you know, we're off the subject here a little bit. But sometimes but I do feel like that's, those are the people that really, uh, I feel, are, can, are really successful in that they, they really have that dedication. They really have that sense of, pouring themselves into the work. They really have the sense of listening to their student, to their colleagues and wanting to be associated with those, those, those colleagues in any way they can. So mm -hmm. that's a wonderful perspective. I love that. I love the aspect of uh, the importance of the desire to learn all the time, even when you're out being a professional. And that's something that you talked about that you did, even when you were out teaching and performing, you would say, Oh, that's interesting that that person does that. I wonder why. Yeah. So. No, I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's just crucial. I mean, I, you know, I think the, I mean, if I, if I look back at my career a little bit, I see, you know, I gave up on taking auditions for orchestral positions. I mean, I got to the finals for a couple of things for one, well, maybe just one, but I, more of them than not, I just didn't even get through the first round. I got there and I, you know, I just, I was just a terrible auditioner and I didn't have any, there's none of that background that we try to give our students today about what does it look like to take an audition? I was just blithering into a, an audition and you know, I think it goes like this. And, you know, you know, I play, there's none of the detailed preparation that our students have the, you know, have the benefits of today. At least that was in, and I didn't have the, the, sort of the mentor back then that says, well, Bill, you know, you've only taken six auditions. Maybe you ought to be thinking about taking about 20 more before you start thinking that things. So <laughs> there is that part of the process for students. And I think that is the end result of the students that are successful is that, you know, I've had plenty of doctoral students over the years that in third year and what's, what's next for me, Mr. Ludwig, why, you know, and there's tears in the tears in the lessons at that point where you just have to say, well, you just got to pick yourself up. We've got to keep going, going at this process. And, but that process does mean a, for the auditioning of a, like we we're just saying, the highly successful people, you've got to be really playing at a really high level just to get noticed at this point. It's not, it's not, you know, good enough isn't good enough anymore. It's really at an extraordinary level. And I think that's the, how to embed that in everybody is that, you know, as I've looked over my, over the years of teaching, it's, you know, I've done my best with these students, but now, particularly here at IU, I feel like, holy cow, I'm the teacher of, la I call it teacher of last resort, you know, for some of these, for some of these students. And I've just got to, I feel like I have to get, 
more and more demanding and more and more how to demand that within the context of supporting them, but making sure that they realize yeah, that's pretty good. That's my work for a recital, but that's not going to get you any attention when you're playing with five or six other bassoon players around the country. So, Can you tell us more about how you help students prepare for auditions and um, if that involves dealing with performance anxiety or even specific audition practicing techniques? Well, sure. I mean, I think that's that's a lot of, a lot of what we do. I mean, uh, at the undergraduate level, I think students are a little bit unaware of, still even here, sometimes a little bit unaware of what the real career in music is about and how you get there. So I think a lot of it is, is for me, the process of starting, starting the freshman with the knowledge of, okay, here is, here is, 30, 40 of our excerpts you've got to have by the, the time you get out of here as an undergraduate, just so you can get into a good graduate school or make yourself competitive. So I certainly think a lot of it for me is just knowledge of the repertoire that is crucial for students to, to know. And then obviously when you get into our core literature, it's it's a very uh, humbling experience to, to try to figure out how to do all the, the details in a kind of it's almost like one plus one equals two in the, in the start of the writer's spring you don't want to pop you don't want it sharp you don't want it blah 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 so it becomes more of a really detailed process um, to be successful with that so knowledge of the literature we do that on a I've been doing that for quite a while on a you know undergraduate level but I still I've, up, I've upped that process here quite a bit and just I prioritize it over the four years. I say, here's the things we're looking at this year, and here's your either by semester. And I, you know, I can't say we don't get to all of that literature every semester. I'm not going to say that, but we certainly do have that as our goals. And and there's another category that is just this is your daily practice routine of excerpts, and it should be all the ones that are the great eliminators. You know, the uh, Ravel Piancochin, or even the Marriage of Figaro, or maybe just how about I'm beginning our tax on a B flat and a high C, and all those kinds of things that make students realize I have to routine this process. And so for me, that's at the essence of what I think the practicing process is for I'm, almost anything, but certainly for the audition process, is is we're highly routine in terms of what does the breath sound like, what does it or feel like, and what is the embouchure going to feel like to get this thing started, and what is my process of you know, what is the, you know, a lot of people call it performance cues. I use that extensively to try to get students to realize I've got to have a concept of the piece. I've got to have a concept of the tempo. And, oh, yeah, here's how the breath is going to work in that concept. And, uh, you know, so it's, but if that can be routine from an early stage, I think it can, can become a very natural process. And it doesn't have to be, oh, I've got to play well for this audition. No, you're trying to demand that. So I think I've been using that a lot in my teaching over the last particularly four or five years, is demanding that from students in lessons. But I tell them, you, you have to demand this of yourself in the practice room, which means a, a crunch on an attack will eliminate you. But all it takes for most students is, oh, I don't want to do that, so I'm going to be set up and ready to go with my whole process. So, And within the context of just making sure students are aware of their literature and and the demands of the tempi that they have to create to, to give, again, that fluid assured technique that, that I'm listening for at the beginning of a audition for, you know, entrance to school. But there is that great unknown of, uh, for each, but I say great unknown, it's, it's to be discovered by each student, I feel, is the, is, is the mental aspect of it. So 
I've had my periods. I didn't do any of that when I was, uh, as I was saying, that's partly when I was such a terrible auditioner. Uh, but I've, I've gotten into meditation over the last several years. I've gotten, been in process, been in situations where I felt like, you know, I just need to calm down. And how, how are you going to do that? You, you know, it's take something more than just a good deep breath and you'll be fine, Bill. But no, it takes a way for me. So I do, a, I do that. Uh, I can't say I do it every day now, but I certainly do it several times a week. Sometimes it's related to uh, exercise routines that I do. I feel like I can it's I can focus on the, the little meditation routine I do. So I try to get students involved in that often. I mean, to try to get them involved in some sort of, you know, meditative process. Or there are so many resources now out there for students. You know, all the Don Green books and all the pulmonary physician just... Just getting on there once or twice makes you realize, holy cow, there's a whole field here, you know. So getting them involved in that early. And I think a lot of students over the years I've had, oh, I've tried that, Mr. Ludwig. I've tried it. It doesn't work for me. And I said, well, you just haven't, you know, you can't read a book and think you've got it. You've got to live it for six months before you get to that first audition. I think that, in essence, is the hard part about a lot of what we do as teachers is, it's, it's not book learning, folks. It's uh-huh. engagement with the breathing process. It's engagement with how you set up an attack. It's engagement with making sure you're not so tight in your, you know, your, with your, the whole process that you can't be a success. And so it's not so the so the audition isn't a discovery. The audition process should not be a discovery about well, here's what happens to me when I get nervous, and you've already got to figure that out. So. I do, I, do, I do think the audition process serves uh, serves that, you know, there is certainly, you know, you can do all the meditation and preparation you want to. There's still an aspect of the audition process that is very intense and very um, at another level of performance awareness that you need to try to find and live in to a certain degree. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a double read podcast, so we've got to ask about reads. <laughs> Can you talk to us about your habits, best advice? Uh, how do you approach read making? Well, I, you know, I've every every for the last fifteen or so years, in other summers as well, I've been more active performing than I am in in the year in this in the year itself, particularly at IU. It's a few solo recitals and a few guest master classes, and you know, you're in the studio most of the time. Uh, but so it's. Every year, as I in May, as I try to pretend that I'm a performing bassoonist, as I go to Brevard, I yeah I start to re- ask myself what is the what is the process um, what is the what is the read making process look like for me and it, it it always I always change and I always try I think what I you know try to get more realistic about that process uh, for myself and for my students meaning. Do as much culling of poor cane as you can before you get there, before you start making the read. So there's a, as little waste as possible of time is my main my main issue, and 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 as as I, I, I deal with a lot of different read styles here. So my, what I'm trying to get to is I try to make a student define what their read style is based upon. But I think their lip structure looks like to me, their, their kind of what their instrument is, how much air they, I'm trying to you always get my students to really engage with the airstream and how much airstream I think they're u- utilizing. And stick with it. <laughs> stick with mm-hmm. that style for you. I think some students think, well, if I just try to, you know, uh, 
you know, a Rieger two, I, my solutions with my read print would be over. No, it wouldn't, darling. We still don't know how to make a, use the, the knife appropriately. So I try to get the students to stick with the process. And I, my process is a little bit more, I think, uh, in terms of read making, is leaving the cane on, leaving a little more cane on. It, it's, uh, it's, uh, I think I'm a little old-fashioned in that context. I feel like I, my read style, I want to be able to have enough cane on the read so I can dampen and undampen with my embouchure, move a little bit onto the read, a little move a little bit back on the read, and um, I feel like I can have a, a, perhaps a little bigger sound of the tenor register uh, than is is probably wanted in some of the American orchestras or needed to a certain degree, if you understand what I mean. So I'm trying to teach that approach, and then I'm trying to get students to figure out how to lighten that up for themselves through exact numbers in the in the tip area, making sure the back doesn't get organized, and you know, and, and making sure the back gets I'm oh, sorry organized, meaning. You're not trying to make get a get the back that's too heavy, and you've got channels involved there, and all those kinds of things. But I found like I found in my teaching here, it's woodworking. It's woodworking, everybody. <laughs> and you know, it's how to how to take the cane off exactly the same way, just like you're that Rieger tip profiler. And if you don't want to use a Rieger tip profiler, let's learn how what they did with that. So they're using exactly the same angles and counting your strokes and and for me, it's also maybe not not taking the rails so far down so quickly. I think oftentimes that that really cuts down the vib the vibrations and what I'm looking for in a read very way too quickly. So, I mean, it's a huge subject, but I do, I do feel like one of in terms of student issues, I do feel like it's, and I think that's a hard thing for students to realize is that well, I'm trying to get you to figure out what your embouchure really should look like and be like, and then oh yeah, that takes more airstream. Okay. And then, you know, you're, you're kind of tight in the, in the back of your throat. So that's really working again. So you're trying to figure that out. And then you're also trying to figure out your read, what, what your read style looks like. So it's a, it's a growth process on both ways for the first, I think, two or three years of an undergraduate life of getting that read really feeling like it matches the student. And I think, you know, the student has to engage, engage with that process. And so I think that's hard for some people to do that. They, they want it, well... What's my read look like? You know, what's it's it's an X factor, and it's not an X factor. They have to go in with a good faith effort <laughs> in order to yeah. get reads that work. Yeah, and I think, and some, you know, a lot of, you know, even here, a lot of a lot of it is, well, geez, I have to make, you know, that many reads. Yeah, you. So I just have, I don't, I'm a terrible enforcer of all my idealistic goals here. I set these goals. But just realizing the actual, the actual, I think this is the other major mistake that I made if I look back and what would you, what would you do differently with your career? Well, I think I might make more reads, everybody. So the students just don't realize how much, inter how much, how much effort it takes. And, <clears throat> and with the you know, profiling with the, you know, and trying to find their processes and, and understanding that. So just the production of reads, and I think that's that's that. And for some people, enjoy that. I think I've discovered that some people enjoy the making of a blank more than they like the actual fighting with the actual with the actual process of making a uh, you know actually troubleshooting a read. Right. The the cut and dried versus the compl compl complicated and you know 
more more detailed process is is something kids sometimes don't want to deal with. I love asking this question. I know it's hard to answer, but I'm curious to know what are some of your favorite pieces to play? And it can be solo, chamber, orchestra, anything. That was a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's for me, it's more about the collaboration with with people. It's not for me. It's not so much. I mean, of course, there are pieces I don't really enjoy playing, but there are there are pieces that I I feel like um, I need to if I could just find a you know with a great pianist or with other wind wind students or wind performers. So I so but you know I do I still it's a for me it's an ultimate challenge. I still do enjoy enjoy playing box suites. I, I, you know, I haven't been doing it much here, but I spent a lot of my career playing wind quintets, doing some recordings with the Rika quintets way in the way gone past. I really, and I, I think I'll, a lot of people think this is crazy, but I really love playing in a wind quintet. <laughs> and the in- intimacy of the chamber music process, as well as just, you know, the the literature itself, and I really enjoy coaching that coaching chamber music. Uh, and getting this, getting you know, particularly students involved in that process. Um, <clears throat> and for the orchestral world, I guess you know, I, I I haven't lived in that world all you know from you know every every week. So I I just enjoy being being in an orchestra. We're playing Strike Four this summer. We're playing Strauss Zarathustra. We're doing um, even Marriage of Figaro is up again, and something else is on Brahms too. So I've just been. Enjoying looking through looking through that material and you know trying to get myself ready for that. So I'm looking forward to those performances. That sounds wonderful. Can you talk to us about? It's also a hard question. We're always told, but um, <laughs> some of your favorite memories of a past performance. For me, it's not really related to um, pieces, but it's the people I've played with, with playing with. Um, for me, it's anything that I play with Mark Ostich. He's an oboist. Mm-hmm. I think many people know who he is. He teaches at uh, Cincinnati. We've been playing together a long time, and we've kept up that correspondence, uh, or kept up our relationship. I just played the Poulon Trio with him for the, I don't know, 10th, 12th time at a something at Chautauqua uh, a few weeks ago. And it's just, it just I just enjoy listening to this guy play and then he's listening to me play and I taper something and he says, well, that's a good idea. I better taper over here too. Oh, here's your accent quality. And then, well, I better accent like Mark did. So it's just that give and take is which I, which I really uh, find so gratifying as a performer. Um, you know, one of the most important, I, the other thing that strikes sticks out to me, not that I was some leading role in that process, but I did a class over in USC in California a few years ago, and I was in my former student Sean Mauser is in the orchestra in there as a in the orchestra, and so he had me come do a class. And then a, I don't know two weeks ahead, hey Bill, Bill, we need a we need some extras on the concert when you're here. You want to do it? So he, I was able to play with the L.A. Phil with my with my uh, student on you know some massively contemporary pieces that, that needed seventeen thousand bassoon players. So, <laughs> but you know that was that was just a really uh, a great experience. So for me, it's always about, it's always about the people. Absolutely. Um, in closing, I always like to ask, um, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? I, I think, I think a lot of it is kind of, kind of what we've been, you know, we've kind of alluded to some of it. I think 
I think for me, the, yes, you, the 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 um, the finding the getting getting the degrees that you feel like you need. But I think more today now, I think it's also getting training in other aspects of of a, a career, so the entrepreneurial aspect of things, fine arts management processes, um, just administrative process, so that you can have yourself poised to fit several needs within a within an academic institution. I think it's getting even it's getting so much harder now just to get any job in our field as well as orchestral as well as uh, academic. So, so that process, I mean, I, I do feel like one of the strengths I've had over time was, um, was the background of teaching that I've had. And I, I didn't mention that I got, I was got kind of burnt out in the eighties. So is this really what I should keep doing and blah, blah, blah. So I just went and hung out with Chris Weat for a week back in the eighties when he was still at Ohio state. And it was just really just, keeping yourself alive to, to, you know, your own growth. So I think that's, that's the only thing my career has really been is the career, a career for a student is project oriented. What is, what is my next project going to be? Is it going to be a performance project? Am I going to do a little research and write an article about something so that you become noticed? And I think one of the things that helped me over the years is I just kept playing with different groups and different people, and I, I think I got some sense of a, a, a being well known about certain aspects of my playing. So I think making contacts and creating the contacts into will help you into the into a in, into any career, but certainly within academia. I th I think the other aspect of it is you know I graduated like a lot of people in my era of you know I am going to be the next greatest bassoon player in the Philadelphia Orchestra, but then you started teaching, and I after four or five years, I says, well, this, hmm, this is pretty good too. And so just embracing the teaching process, reading about the actual, you know, educational psychology or in, you know, just so that you start to broaden and develop your skills as a teacher. And I think that's becoming more and more apparent these days. You know, you read about, or you hear things about, um, uh, you know, what I wasn't taught in, in, in graduate school. Well, mm -hmm. we're trying to make sure everybody realizes here in grant and you get out of it's just as valid to teach as it is to play. And oftentimes what we people that we think are the, uh, you know, have important chamber or solo careers, they have also very important teaching careers to maintain the ability to have a chamber group or to have some semblance of a solo career, particularly within the United States. So I think it's it's all it all rolls into one. How does a career develop? I, I think one of the one of the things that really helped me get on the map was I played the Villalobos Brasileiros number six at a flute conference in New Orleans way back ago with the professor the professor at LSU Catherine Kimmler and guess who was in the audience was Sam Barron the flutist that was New York win quintet and taught at Stony Brook he took a liking to my playing he so then White Mr Weisberg was leaving. Um, Stony Brook at that time, and so it was through that chance encounter. That's happened to it happens to everyone. I'm not the only one, obviously, that happens to. But he said, "I really enjoy your playing, and why don't you let's talk about maybe you coming up to Stony Brook?" So I went up to Stony Brook. I did my thing, played a little bit, taught, and I was offered the job. I did that for five years, going back and forth between LSU and Stony Brook. But one of the things that I had, I try to be a reflective, a reflective person about teaching, about my students, about my own playing. 
But at that time, this is this is mid eighties. I had two kids and I was crazy. But uh, <laughs> he said he said he said thing that has stuck with me throughout my life. He said, you know, you really you really get at the moment that the student has the problem. You really get in the moment where the student needs your help. And you know, I I hadn't I didn't know that. I so I just felt like that made me that made me even that was probably 10, 12, 15 years into teaching, made me realize, yeah, there, you know, there are strengths, there are talents, but this is also a very important job that you're doing in getting getting the student to perform at the highest level that they're capable capable of. And so I, I, I owe a debt to Sam. Wow, this has been such an inspiring and insightful interview. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Uh, it was my pleasure. So we hope you enjoyed that interview. Please don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can listen to us anywhere that you get your podcasts. And don't forget to go visit that Double Read Dish store and pick out the merch. Don't be the only one left out in your section. We're starting out with domestic orders only. So you, if you live in the United States, head on over to DoubleReadDish.com and click the tab store and you'll be able to find both of our amazing items there. Galit, who do we have coming up next? Next time we are talking with Aaron Hill, who is the new assistant professor of oboe at the University of Nevada, Reno.